Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by James Willoughby. James, thank you very much for coming on. Before we get into this episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter, at BettingPod, and check out the website, businessofbetting.com. Guest suggestions are much appreciated. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by James Willoughby. James, thank you very much for coming on. It's a pleasure. So James, how would one describe you? You've done a fair bit and there's a lot to read and, and consume about you and your life in this space, but or how do you describe yourself? Well, presently, uh, I am the handicapping data analyst for the British Horse Racing Authority. It's my job to basically model, uh, in a really formal mathematical way, uh, the way that horses are handicapped and to try to translate that to the human handicappers involved on the team in a way that they can understand, in a way that they can implement to improve the way that horses are handicapped, which I must say, to begin with, is very good to start with. But there are there is a mathematical paradigm you can bring to the human handicapping of horses. Uh, computers are, are useful in this domain as they are in every other one. So for those who are a bit younger, take us back, give us a snapshot of maybe 15 years ago or, or longer. Yeah on how things might have been approached and, and how that's differed over the years to today where you're taking a much more mathematical approach and it sounds like you've been embraced to a certain extent by the BHA to be able to do that now. Yeah, well, there was always an oral tradition in horse racing. There was sort of empirical learning passed on and that many of the things that were formally thought to be correct... One of, the, one of the things I first remember is that when I walked into the time form offices as a, in, in Halifax, which is a job I never thought I'd got and was delighted to have and really enjoyed working there. The first thing that people, you know, we would talk about when we were in the pub after work was that people said things like front running was doing it the hard way. And of course, when one analyzed the numbers from, ra- from racing and w- we tried to make sectional times, which of course aren't provided electronically, but we spent hours clicking stopwatches and recording them off the TV we realized that, of course, this, is, this is, was nonsense, and this is one of the many kind of bromides of the time that didn't really stand up to analysis. Um, and so from that point, as a young person getting into the sport, it, it just kind of it made a lot of sense to a lot of us at the time that there was a lot that could be done, and there was a lot of uh, ground that could be made up, and a lot of that ground has been made up by some really clever and very inspiring contributors all around the world to horse racing, uh, both academically and outside um, universities and institutions. And um, I've always found it very exciting and and enthralling, and I'm really, really uh, happy to have played a a very small part in that. So take me through the, the public approach, and what I mean by that is talking about some of these ideas and concepts and theories yeah, and sharing them to the public. And it sounds like if the general public 
may not have shared or even understood some of these concepts and, and your role in part was to talk them through and explain them and, and try and help people understand. What was your aim when you were doing that? Were you trying to, I guess, grow the, the horse racing industry through new types of approaches to horse racing or were you simply just trying to get your ideas into the world and then see if they stuck? It's a really good question, Jake. Yeah, I mean, I, have all, I come from a family of teachers and I've never had a commercial ambition uh, as far as trying to make myself, enrich myself through any kind of tipping service or anything like that. The answer to your question is, I don't really know. I can tell you where it started. It started, my life changed when, as a 10-year-old, I jumped into a paddling pool in my local park. And there, people had left some broken whiskey bottles, and I lacerated my foot. And the doctor stitched it up with the glass still in it. And that led me to getting contracting septicemia and nearly dying. And I was in hospital for six or seven weeks at the time. And after about a week or so, I heard the doctors come round, talking to each other at the foot of my bed, saying, well, he's bed, saying he, he's not going to make it. And I remember that point on feeling like, you know, this is quite literally nearly the end of the world. And that night I um, was visited by my family. And one of those, the person most dear to me was my grandfather. My grandfather was, I believe, a really extraordinary man. And he inspired me to keep fighting at the time. And one of the devices I'll never forget was he was a big fan, as many men were at the time in Britain, of the pools, trying to predict eight draws, which, of course, we now know is basically not much more than random guessing. But, the, but he and his friends gave great time to this. And he showed me a chart of the then first division and the number of points that the team was in the first division had gained after six games. This was the previous season. And then he showed me the same chart after all the teams had played all their games, after the league was complete. And he traced them on a graph, quite scruffy it was, an old, like in an old exercise book. And he said, look, he said, after six weeks, after six games, the order was completely different. And I said to him, yes, granted, we know, what's, the, what's your point? And he'd said, outcomes in the future are highly uncertain. He goes, that applies to a football team, but it also applies to a young person fighting for his life. And, and I, that, from that point, uh, point on, my life changed. I saw everything around me through the lens of probability, and sports and betting is basically the most fertile ground that man knows in which to investigate this phenomenon because in other domains, science, the stock market, one may have to wait a considerable amount of time to observe outcomes and associate those outcomes with the parameters of a model. But in sports, and particularly in horse racing, one only has to wait a couple of minutes. Wow, that's powerful. So I, I want to ask about, you mentioned the random guessing aspect. I've heard yeah. you talk about that, and I think one of the one of the main reasons why not one of the main reasons, but a component of betting is that illusion of control and people that, that bet will tell you that they can probably predict the outcome better than they actually can. Uh, certainly, if you took a survey of, of punters, that's what would happen. How do you go about trying to explain to people some of these concepts that they probably don't want to hear, they probably don't intuitively believe, and they're very, very difficult to 
grass because it's not what you want to know. I've always been aware not to become a fun crusher as far as data is concerned. There's nothing worse than a data bully, somebody that just basically says to everything, oh, that's random. One of the things about baseball, which I've always been interested in since being a teenager, is that formally the idea that statisticians had about the game, where they said there were only three true outcomes, a walk, a strikeout, and a home run, came about because they lacked proper definition. They didn't have all the variables. And it turned out later, when they had things like the, the tracking data, that they could understand other parts of the game more and more fully. And what were put, formally thought to be random effects turned out not to be that. I always think of those, that type of skill, like with the, you know, the, the hot hand discussion, I always think that, as a, that skills have a, a, may have a, the idea of a half-life, that one can control the universe for a very finite amount of time. So, for example, when you are shooting free throws, there may be a few seconds, maybe even a minute, when an athlete is zoned in and can achieve a sequence of outlying results. But soon, regression to the mean kicks in, the world changes, and the athlete becomes prone to the same forces that all the other athletes are, and that his numbers return to whatever his career numbers were. And I think it's the same in betting. I think we all know what it's like temporarily to have a great run. And that may be not due to just luck, as some people assert, but it might be due to, say, for example, one has a really strong grasp of a particular group of horses. One understands why a race has been won by a horse, where other people are surprised by it. You might have read it. You might have anticipated that a race would be run at a slow pace, and therefore your understanding was better because a priori, you were, you were expecting the result. And so you were then able to see that a horse that you liked on the day and that people didn't like, why that horse may well have been to some extent flattered. So on another day, the people who didn't like it in the first place may have been, they, they might, might move on to liking the horse. You, move, you can understand why the horse won and you, you're one step ahead. And I think for many punters that I speak to and listen to and like to the output of, they talk about this idea of, you know, being ahead. And I think the reason people keep saying things like that or having an edge or being ahead is that it's a certain time you can definitely do that. But those times, just like the, 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 the basketball shooter on the free throw line, those times don't last forever. And so I hesitate to call things random when I think maybe they're due to some temporal skill, temporal understanding, a special elevated sense of something or other that humans can possess. But we can't hold on to that sort of thing for very long. Can we replicate that, though? Can we have multiple instances where we have that, let's call it control, or we have that aptitude in certain circumstances, do you think? Statisticians have always really struggled traditionally with cause and effect. Correlation is not causation. People often trot out after a year at university or so, but, but correlation sometimes is causation. In other words, sometimes it is possible to have that control over a situation because you have an elevated understanding of it. And that for whatever reason, it's your specialism. It's your domain. And through thinking about something really hard, you can really gain an insight into it that others cannot. And for me, I first learned that at the foot of my grandfather. My grandfather was a solicitor's clerk. He had no formal mathematical training 
at all, but a bit like Bill James, the great baseball writer. He wanted to figure things out in sports that he enjoyed, particularly rugby league, as it was at the time, as, he, as it was his fondness to begin with, before he moved on to horse racing and football and that sort of thing. And so what he would do is spend time thinking to himself about how those games could be understood through statistics, even though he didn't have any training at all and he didn't have any data even. And what he used to do was, with his daily paper, say, in horse racing, he would look back at the... Once he got the results on a given day, he'd look back at the paper that he'd saved from the previous day and he'd collect the number of horses in all the races who had won last time out, say, for example, or was second last time out, and he'd work out what statisticians might call base factors, which is he'd work out the significance, the proportionality of horses who had won a race, who had, who, sorry, who, who, who had won last time out and what, what their strike rate was. And he built up like that a kind of model of horse racing with, as I say, with no training and no data to begin with either. And so I distinctly remember him looking at a, a, a race and producing probabilities of success, and then from that point on, teaching me about the odds were basically the ratio of a favoured outcome compared to an unfavoured outcome. And from there on, I began to learn, as a 13 or 14-year-old, things which I later recognised through a more formal study of maths and stats, where these quite advanced ideas, distributions of variables and models that in machine learning are now taught uh, in, in, the, in the academic canon. A good example is that he and his friends were keen on the rugby league coupon as was. This was the big thing. It, this was an early form of handicapping. And he would meet his friends down the local bowls club and they'd compare their handicaps for the forthcoming uh, set of fixtures. And they, they would produce a sort of empirical mean of, of, of their handicaps for each for each game and they would then compare that with the bookmakers and they would discuss and then after the games they updated their ratings of these teams in the same way that say for example models like the the, the LO uh, uh, numbers do in the, the before the game they'd have an idea of their expectation for the playing strengths of the teams they'd then intuitively understand that games were subject to randomness and that, that a result between two football teams, say, for example, could not ever define the difference in playing strength. But it was a piece of evidence that one could use to update the, your prior understanding of the situation. And so, say, for example, I remember a friend of my grandfather's who he, he would always tell me, it's the rule of a quarter. So for, for every... If you predict that some rugby game should, should go to the home team by 10 points, and in fact what happened was, say for example, that team won by 50 points, so there was a difference of 40 between the forecast and the, and the um, observed result, he would then change his figures by 10 points. Now that's obviously a very extreme example. He would update the difference between his forecast and, and, and the realised outcome by a quarter of the difference. Now, of course, that in formal machine learning is known as the learning rate uh, over which we, or in, in, in the um, lingo of LO, that is the K factor. And yet, 
he'd, he'd never been exposed to these ideas at all or read books on them or anything. It was just he and a group of his friends intuitively understood them. And that, for me, was very, very inspiring. And still to this day, I come across things I read in textbooks that remind me of foundational ideas. And what that taught me was that any subject, no matter how complicated, can be understood if you have the desire to learn it. And you have the desire to start right at the beginning of whatever it is you study and build up your understanding brick by brick by brick. And one of the great things about horse racing and betting and sports in particular is that shared with machine learning, the idea has switched from statistical inference where we try to understand the past and parametize a model to explain the past to, to the paradigm of prediction. Prediction, it has been realized, is the most important thing. That no matter how informal your model was, how much it was based on subjective factors or a rather fuzzy understanding of the mass, if you could make a series of really good predictions over a long space of time, not fooling yourself, and that you understood where the errors in your predictions came about, you would then gain a better understanding of the game that you were studying, how the results came about. And I find that idea still to this day extremely useful. Seems like some rare qualities, and some of those things you talked about I'm interested in your thoughts, especially thinking about the world we live in today. Those that have been focusing on the mathematical approach and, and some of the things you discussed from years ago and how that's developed over the years to the to the average punter that watches games and thinks they can understand and quantify what's going on even though they're probably using other methods in their in their mind. What's the differential do you think between having a statistical or mathematical approach and how successful you can potentially be doing it on that side of things versus the the average fan who might watch a game and digest what's happening and then have their own I guess manually put together probabilities well I think it depends how your brain works I don't insist that everybody looks at things quantitatively because I think some of the most interesting people in this world are intuitive learners who can't necessarily tell you where their view about something came about and from, from what sort of concept it was derived, but have this sort of fortunate habit of always or often being right about something or having an ability to, to boil down a complex situation. Perhaps they're great visual learners or maybe they've got a great recognition of similar patterns that they've observed before that they can't necessarily formalize. In fact, they might not be able to own themselves but they can, they can do it. And they are, I think, the most interesting people, I mean, traditionally people who are sort of obsessed or stuck in just numbers, maybe aren't the most interesting people to listen to overall. But it's the way that you relate whatever it is, whatever the way is that you understand the world, the way you can relate that to other people makes you a really interesting person to, to listen to. I think in horse racing, as someone that digests a lot of stuff around the world, I find maybe I would rank Australia 1, America 2, and maybe us here in England Island, Britain and Ireland, uh, quite a distant third in actually being able to talk interestingly and explain racing. And I think this is one of the things we're always obsessed with in horse racing. It's how do we make the sport more popular? How do we broaden it out? Well, I've got some really strong views on those. They are my own views. They might not be right. 
but they're derived from my own experiences like everybody else's are. And mine come from talking to people who have no background or, or prior interest in horse racing, who dismiss it as something that belongs to the, to the insider and that is forever the preserve of those who actually know before the race what's going to win. And I gave a talk quite a few years ago now to a group of people called the University of the Third Age, who are kind of retired folk who want to understand something better because they're highly intelligent and accomplished individuals. It took me a very, very short space of time to totally transform their outlook on horse racing. And that's not because I'm a great teacher, far from it. I struggle in that regard quite a lot. But it's because that there's no way in for a lot of people into horse racing. For example, there's no free API uh, for data. There's no real uh, domain sort of teacher available to somebody who goes along to the race as they end up listening to probably some loudmouth who gives them all sorts of wrong ideas about what a horse racing is and how interesting predicting anything is. And I think that there's a gap between the modern mind, the modern taste. People nowadays are highly sophisticated compared to, say, 20 or 30 years ago, not because human beings have changed massively, but the experience of human beings has. People have had to tackle computers in their home and get the best out of technology. And that has advanced their ability to learn things that are related to um, more sort of a more sophisticated outlook on the world. And kids in particular, as a father of two, are now miles in advance of where I was. My um, learning and understanding of um, science and statistics depended on my local librarian, who happened to be a very kindly chap. But if I asked him for a book on statistics or mathematics, I'd have to wait sometimes three weeks before either one became available or he ordered one for me. And often those books were too complicated for me in the first place. Now, the availability of learning is awesome. But the problem is that people in horse racing here don't really understand how little that they actually know about the science of statistics. It's not their fault. As I say, these are some very, very highly accomplished individuals, very, including some very successful punters. But I think that there's no tradition of passing that on to the neophyte. There's no way of making the sport more interesting, apart from saying things like horses are magnificent creatures or the betting ring is extremely vibrant or things which are true for a lot of people but are not true for a lot more people who, who lack the same attachment to those things in particular. Maybe they've not grown up with horses or maybe they, they find people who talk about betting to be outside their normal experience. But horse racing offers and sport offers to people an immense insight into the science, no less than the scientific method itself. And it's a tremendous playground for learning about ideas and then subsequently for branch, branching out to other disciplines. And so I think all that's a bit of a shame. I don't know how to, to make it different myself. I only hope that it does so because I think it, horse racing misses out on a great opportunity in connecting with fans um, who would otherwise maybe drift to things like football, where the expected gold model has, has taken hold in really quick time, to the point where it's on match of the day, our iconic um, Saturday evening football program. They show for every game 
expected goals. People don't find that difficult to understand. They don't difficult. If you say to them, some sometimes people say, well, well, how do they calculate expected goals? And if you say to them, it just assumes a league average scoring rate given the position on the pitch and a few other things about the shots. It's basically a way of us understanding that goals are a random draw from shots and that shots are more numerous and therefore more predictable and more stable and eventually goals fall into line with shots if you wait long enough. And so the true signal of team strength is from expected goals. Now that basic idea is miles beyond what is used in horse racing, yet it's very easy to come up with a very similar idea. Wins above expectation, for example, is a metric that I use. It hasn't take, taken on, probably never will take on, but, but wins above expectation is exactly the same as expected goals. In that, in that a jockey who rides 100 even money shots should ride 50 winners, and so we shouldn't get carried away with a jockey who rides 50, 51, 52, or 53 winners from that sample. He's only doing what the horse, horse's uh, form and the quality of its trainer, etc., etc., and its breeding suggested that it would do. And that when we can observe jockeys who have achieved a statistically significant departure, especially to the positive uh, from, win, from the, the expected number of winners that they should have, we've learned something really interesting about that jockey. And then we can go to the film and we can say, what systematically is this jockey doing? Because we know, we know that he, can't be, he or she can't be achieving what he or she has been doing just at random. So... Are they going the shortest way around? Are they particularly patient? Is there something else about the way they approach horse racing that's different and from which we can learn? And all those things seem to me to be a thousand miles away from where we presently are in horse racing, simple though they really are. And there are things which empowered people to understand stuff like basketball and uh, hockey in America and um, baseball a lot better and they fired the imagination of a whole generation of new fans. And I just pray that one day we actually do get to that point. It's a really interesting discussion, and I talk to a lot of people about it and think about it and how it relates to the current day and age of, of sports betting or the current day and age of, of horse racing. And I get the sense when I was growing up, it was Sunline and Northerly and Lonro and these yeah. horses, and the discussion yeah. wasn't necessarily mathematical or statistical often. It was about the passion and the euphoria of watching those horses and them, those horses running and the, the superstar nature of a lot of them and the big clashes. And it was more tweaking at the heartstrings. And I think the challenge yeah. now in, in a lot of these sports and a lot of these racing jurisdictions is how do we go from that day and age to now where in horse racing anyway, it seems like a lot of the horses, all they want to do is win a Caulfield Guineas and, and go to the breeding <laughs> barn or, um, you know, a lot of the time... I was with a friend and we were watching uh, a horse racing coverage and this friend had never really watched horse racing and was sort of saying, why are they showing random horses walking around in a circle 15 minutes before the race starts? What use is that? And I thought, well, actually, I don't know. I think people want to see the horses in the parade ring beforehand, but it's not useful for me, certainly. I'm not sure anyone else that knows much about what to look for, but they often do show it and maybe it's entertaining. But one of the major challenges which you touched on that strikes me is talking in the old days about, you know, Lonro winning the Australia cup is very easy and entertaining today talking about, you know, speed above the benchmark or how many lengths above average this horse went. And even, you know, a recent example, I'm sure you saw the autumn sun run 
uh, last did. weekend. So, you know, I was someone I certainly respect in horse racing said, look, he didn't exert too much energy. He was kind of in a good spot. The leaders went pretty hard. Not you're saying the leaders didn't do a good job either, but the Autumn Suns run was pretty good, but not, you know, world-class necessarily. It just looked damn good. And others who yeah. are, you know, coming from a more intuitive perspective would say that's as good a run as you'll ever see. It's not that sexy or exciting to talk about, you know, position in running, how many, you know, lengths based on the average of the Autumn Sun's previous starts and and that type of three-year-old Group 1 race. Having those discussions from a more mathematical, statistical uh, perspective and then predicting forward, saying the Autumn Sun is going to be a top tier but not a world-class three-year-old, doesn't necessarily strike at the passionate heartstrings of a lot of the, the punters out there. It's a very good point, but the heart can feed the mind and vice versa as well. The two approaches, the two ways to enjoy horse racing are complementary, in my view. What, after all, is better than finding out the real reason why a horse won a race and then we're in awe of its athletic capabilities even more? One thing, I consider myself actually a complete, an, an outside, a lifelong outsider in inverted commas, single, single quotes to horse racing, in as much as I don't really want to mix with horse racing folk. I don't really want to feel like I'm part of the show. I like the fact that I do other things. I like the fact that I'm fond of other sports. But one thing I have benefited from being a journalist is getting to know some of the elite competitors. And say, for example, Ryan Moore, who I think has got no peers as a rider of horse. Now, where did, why is Ryan Moore a great jockey? Well, one of the reasons, of course, is that he gets on loads of really good horses, which enable him to demonstrate his talents. But he, like the great jumps jockey, Ruby Walsh, both Ryan Moore and Ruby Walsh have got a fundamental understanding of what a horse race is. They can tell you. They never get asked in public, but they can tell you. Ruby Walsh, for example, the, the National Hunt rider, he wrote in his book, a passage about how, as a young rider, he would count to 14 to make sure he was going at even pace. Now, of course, that would seem too slow for flat racing, but bear in mind he was running on the back. He was riding jumpers in the mud. Ryan Moore, through the brief chats I've had with him over the years, he has got a very far-sighted understanding of, what, of how to win a horse race. And for him, I'm putting words into his mouth now, because one has to do that with Ryan Moore quite a lot. But pace dominates position. Racing doesn't have a fundamental, a formal fundamental law. But if it did, that would be it. For all that matters really is that a horse runs as close to its physical, its natural ability as it's able to do. We become obsessed with the relative positioning of horses, the autumn sun, again, it was, it was talked about how the autumn sun had made loads of ground up at the end of his race and other famous horses we've described in terms of the relativity of their finishing burst. But of course that doesn't matter at all in nature. It's not, a horse is not affected in the slightest by what the other horses are doing. What matters to that horse is the deviations the jockey or other factors enforce on it away from even pace. And when you explain that to accomplished people who haven't had the chance to 
understand things like that. You can say, well, for every deviation away from ideal pace, there is an exponential loss of energy. And we know that from driving a car. We know if we look at our fuel consumption needle, we know that if we go just a little bit faster than 56 miles an hour, we might use perhaps 10% more fuel. But if we go at 66 miles an hour, we use 30% more fuel. If we go at 86 miles an hour, we use 50 to 60% more fuel. In other words, there's an exponential loss of fuel, which a proxy for that is the horse of solve energy reserves or its power. If we deviate from ideal pace like that, we cost the car fuel and the jockey costs the horse energy. So when we watch in a race, we've got to try to train our minds to stop watching the relativity of positions and start trying to understand the important physical uh, constraints of a race, which is that the pace changes. Sometimes a jockey can't run at even pace. Sometimes he, he gets chopped back at the start and he's left at the back of the field and then maybe he's beholden to a jockey at the front going off too fast. Then we've got the idea of saving ground at, on the bends. That's another thing that can be understood through physics. We can measure the difference in arc length for horses who are traveling a number of lengths out from the rail. And so say, for example, let's take the example of the Kentucky Derby. The path distance of a horse on the first bend of the Kentucky Derby is many, many times more important than, the, than losing ground on the final bend of the Kentucky Derby. And because, the reason for that, of course, is that ground loss isn't the important thing. It's energy loss, which is the important thing. And a horse that, lo that travels the same um, a longer distance in the same time is running at a higher speed and once again we know that higher speeds lead to an exponential loss of energy so we can then start to watch the kentucky derby in a much more intelligent way than we ever thought we could do just using our eyes there is no way that a human could watch there's only one running of it per year for us for for one thing but even if a human watched 20 renewals of the kentucky derby i would defy even the most expert analyst to say to me after that, oh, it's massively important where you are on the first turn, but it doesn't really matter where you are on the second turn so much. And that sort of thing, derivable from classical mechanics in physics, are things which can empower people's um, qualitative views on horse racing and make them enjoy the sport a lot more better, because it's a lot more, because it's more it's more satisfying intellectually to feel like you have a grasp of what you're watching. No, I agree with you. Certainly along that line, definitely. I, I just want to ask, in the practical reality of the world, how do you couple that with people that have differing views or people that make decisions based on you know, different approaches? And it might be that you know, a trainer, I hear yeah. trainers say all the time, well, I want to get this horse to settle, so I'm going to take it back you know, to last. Yeah. Or I just want this horse to be third defense and relax and then be pulled out for one last run and... Some of these things that seem to go not necessarily not necessarily diametrically opposed to what you're talking about, but some of these things aren't aligned with some of the discussions we've been having. How do you how do you couple them in in real life? Right. Well, because we're you and I are actually having this conversation, we can then explore between us. We can explore. We said it was like a fundamental law. Well, all fundamental laws in every subject. We then build on them with exceptions to understand exactly how the world works outside of the laboratory. And so, yeah, those things you said are, are hugely important, and those can be articulated by skillful riders and by 
really talented trainers. They can say, yeah, that's all very well, but at Flemington, or horses lose concentration, or the better ground is away from the inside rail, so ground loss you know, can be discounted on a given day, and all those things which, which experts uh, are always worth listening to about, and that's why the statistician should always remain incredibly humble at heart, because a good statistician knows that when you measure the difference between your predictions and the observed outcomes, there is a lot of residual variance. In other words, there's a lot that the model cannot explain. And in that area of things which are inexplicable to the model, either because the model doesn't have enough variables or the model doesn't understand how those variables should interact, um, are the views, are the worthy views of experts in the field, people who can say, well, this is why it happens, or this is why your model is wrong. And that's the way that science in particular has progressed. Science is not a computational discipline. It's a consensual discipline. People raise ideas. Those ideas are interrogated by their peers. And as a result, hopefully, um, science moves on. And the same process works for understanding horse racing. And that's why it remains as interesting now uh, to me, who has spent somebody who has spent multiple hours a day since I was in my early 20s, so nearly 30 years studying nothing more uh, than a horse race. That's why it remains something that I feel that even at this point, I've only got a very basic grasp of. Yeah, and I even even from when I started following it and you would get the newspaper out and you would look, okay, if this horse is first up, you'd look at its first up statistics or if this horse yeah. is on a wet track, all you would do is look at wet track statistics and that's what they would talk about on certainly on television and even now to a certain extent, they'll talk about some statistics and you think, well, I don't think this is that relevant based on accumulated knowledge of the sport, but, you know, I guess that's what they've got to talk about or that's what sticks with the with the viewer or the listener or whatever it might be. I'm curious in your experience and from your perspective, have there been some ideas and concepts that you really believe in that have had the most trouble getting traction or there's been a lot more pushback than others that you you can remember? Yes, definitely, without a doubt. One thing stands head and shoulders above everything else in Britain, which is split times or sectional times. Uh, the views of many experts within the sport have always been that the the tracks are too heterogeneous for this to be like something we can rely on and that hills and bends and uh, variances in ground make the expenditure on a sectional timing system not really worth it and more liable to throw up things which are confusing. But of course, that demonstrates, well, it's, it's, it's worthy testimony, of course it is, but it demonstrates a lack of understanding of the way that problems are solved. People might tell me things like that whilst holding a mobile phone. Um, and if they had any grasp of like what, of, what the, uh, of information theory and the, the advances that mankind has put into developing mobile phones over the years, they'd realize that if we, might, if we could get to the moon in 1969 using far less uh, computing power than is encased within that said mobile phone, I think we can certainly understand that horses running uphill go slower than horses running downhill, and we can model that process. But of course, the problem is that we're, we're stuck forever in this endless sort of cycle of the fact that if we don't admit more sophisticated technology, 
we can never then never rely on more sophisticated ideals. And <laughs> we're forever left to discuss horse racing in public here in this very basic way. And we're left to, over the years, to make our breakthroughs from reading the Jim Quinn books or the Andy Byer books or all the vast material that Bill Benter's um, insights uh, into gambling. We're left, we're left to other countries to develop those more sophisticated ideas that we piggyback off. Let's talk price. Unlike bookies and toads, the Betfair Exchange is a low-margin, buy-sell, fixed-odds marketplace where the value stays with the punter, not the house. Ready for the game within the game? Join betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. So I want to ask you about a couple of uh, cognitive topics that come to mind, and there are a lot, and I think that's one of the questions I want to ask. There's, there's so many different thoughts and theories and, and cognitive concepts now, and mm. everyone seems to have read, uh, you know, Taleb and Full by Randomness or yeah. Anti-Fragile, and they'll think about how that might apply, or they've read, uh, yeah. you know, Kahneman and these types of things and translate them where relevant to, to betting and horse racing and sports. How do you go about dissecting between some of those and what i mean by that is you know if if you win seven of your last 10 bets someone will scream small sample size and if you've been winning for the last 25 years someone will scream well survivorship bias and you know you continue on through this process through many different arcs and and going through you know small samples versus long samples versus variance and randomness and all this stuff how do you go about pulling apart what's more important, less important? Is it is there an easy way to do that, or is it just a is it just a process over the years? I would say that it depends on your ambitions from betting on horses. Is your ambition principally to have fun and to aim for profit at the same time? In which case, consuming all those texts that you just said is a really good idea because doubtless that does increase your fun and your interest level. And it's no surprise that that books like the Taleb books and other statistical texts of, uh, of gained traction within the horse racing and sports betting community for, for obvious reasons. They're, they're, they are very germane to the topic and they are very interesting. But if it's profit you're after and nothing else matters, then it's a totally different matter. Then one needs to build up a philosophy on whatever you're studying from first principles. And one needs to understand the limits of your data and the limits of your model and not to admit more far-sighted complex ideas into the whole thing because those things don't lead generally to better predictions which is an idea of course ironically you can gain from reading the literature but um to cycle back on myself if profit is your only motivation then the route to that profit is pretty obvious to most humans, which is to work hard, to study what you're studying carefully, to bet in a careful manner. And most of the really successful punters, the most profitable punters I've met, aren't necessarily those people you'd like to be stuck on a desert island with. They're very focused people. They're very, they can, they've got great powers of concentration. They can, they can bet in running or they can bet before the, the, the event in vast quantities without ever flinching without ever becoming uh, beholden to the, the sequencing of their results they can't necessarily talk about racing particularly interesting because that's no flaw of theirs they don't care about that sort of thing so i think that we we tend to pretend there's a pretense in horse race broadcasting that everybody out there 
has got to adopt the ways of the professional. They've got to be cautious, and they've got to only make bets that are above what they presume to be the horse's chance of winning the race, etc., etc. But, of course, we know that behaviorally, people aren't like that at all, and that those aren't their payoffs. Those aren't their motivations. They're looking to have fun. And the books that you mentioned, they might confuse you, but you'll have a good time becoming confused. Absolutely. No, we, we often there's talk about the, the betting utopia and always being able to quantify your edge perfectly and applying a certain staking plan on top of that and being very robotic. Yeah. But the reality is the vast, vast majority of people don't fit into that category. I want to I wanna ask about how you would describe the transition over the years from, you know, gaining knowledge, testing theories and that type of thing? Has it been, you know, building blocks one on top of the other? Has it been you've torn down the house and started again a few times? Has it been swings and roundabouts where it's, you know, you're just navigating the path? Take us through, you know, your thoughts on how things have progressed over the years. Yeah, well, this is something I could talk about for a long time and, and, and something which is probably quite boring to most, most people apart from myself. So I'll try to be careful. But for me... My evolution as a horse racing um, devotee, somebody interested in the subject, I never call myself an expert, was changed radically by academia. Not because that I thought that academics had a particularly strong grasp of how to bet winners. In fact, far from it. Most of the models, uh, Bill Benter aside, of course, most of the modeling ideas and papers written about things like NFL and baseball and basketball well, if you're a domain expert, as many of the people listening to this podcast are, you'll immediately be able to see through some of the assumptions that they make and realize that even uh, now, some of those foundational papers on horse racing and sport, the Dixon and Coles ones in football, um, Hal Stern in the NFL, Bolton and Chapman in horse racing. And, and in more recent days, men like uh, Mark Glickman, for example, the, the Harvard professor who does so much tremendous work on um, ratings, and Jim Albert, you'll, you'll, you'll understand that some of those ideas aren't directly applicable to the actual um, pursuit of making profit from backing winners. Now, but by exposing myself to those, I came across the fact that many of the people I've just mentioned were Bayesians. And the, mo the moment I realized that, as someone who had been taught statistics through the, the most common frequentist paradigm of um, basically introduced by English statisticians at the turn of the 20th century, I began to realize that, that Bayesian inference and Bayesian statistics offered me not just a way of trying to back more winners, but it changed my entire philosophy on science and on life itself, really. And that, that led me to spending a vast amount of time educating myself, which is still a, a process which will go on forever and is part of what makes me and what makes me, what makes me tick. The fact that knowledge is out there for all of us now in a way that it's never been before. And one can do online course after online course and read book after book. And although, although you must always remember that at heart you're an amateur, that you're someone who doesn't really understand it because as well as you might do, and that you mustn't start thinking you can apply outside of your own study. But consuming those ideas is, broadens the mind significantly and is tremendously stimulating. And that was, to answer your question, that was, for me, 
the turning point. I, I realized at that point that there was a lot more to the subject than I ever presumed that there was. And so it kind of lessened my zeal to turn myself into the best punter I ever could do at that point. But it made me realize that there was a vast amount of understanding between me and the inverted commas promised land that I had to try to navigate, I had to try to educate myself. And that process will probably still be going on when, when I pass on. But it's something that drives me on a day-to-day basis um, to learn more about and to apply in my own chosen highly trivial field. So what are your thoughts for the today's punter and I guess the next generation coming through? A lot of people I talk about who are even younger than me talk about, well, you know, I've I've read Wisdom of the Crowds and I know yeah. markets tend towards efficiency and, you know, I want to avoid confirmation bias and, and recency bias <laughs> and I, I want to try and navigate the, the noise and try and find the signals and talk a lot about this stuff and there's so much there to consume. Like you said, there's an ocean of knowledge to try and bring in and dissect through yourself. What do you think the biggest challenges will be for the next generation of, of punters who are coming through who try and either want to be professional or want to be semi-professional and useful at it and not, you know, completely wipe out their bank? Well, let me be facetious for a second. By far the biggest challenge is actually getting a bet on, I suspect. <laughs> and it's that that they'll probably spend most of their time actually trying to navigate. But to, to answer your question more fully, I think that, that as markets become more sophisticated, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily always more difficult to beat depending on the individual's approach. For example, what seems to me to be the case in Britain now, in British horse racing now, is that there's this cyclical effect where whatever is the kind of method du jour, it becomes mined out of the market. But if you wait long enough, it comes round again. And I've certainly noticed listening to people talk and observing their results that, say, for example, in British horse racing now, some of the really old-fashioned methods have got great traction again in markets and, and can lead to profitable outcomes because people of the zeal that you and I have been talking about, the, the, the zeal of people to educate themselves and to become ever more sophisticated and taking all those things that they've read in, in Taleb and other places and start to try to wonder about pace and sectional times and all these sort of high-level concepts and that people who actually focus on the temperament of the horse or people who keep a list of horses who are, who are now who have now dropped in the handicap, like they used to do, which is something that people did when I was a kid a lot. You would see all these endless lists of well-handicapped horses, and then I never saw those for 25 years. Now people have started to write that way again, uh, because handicappers, modern-day handicappers, adjust more proactively. To when a horse wins a race, it tends to be raised more in the weights than it used to be, when uh, maybe there wasn't such a great understanding of actually what the horse had achieved. And so methods and the profitability of those methods, in horse racing at least, I'm not so sure about other sports because I don't have so much experience in them, but there's this cyclical effect. And so to answer your question, what a punter now, somebody who wants to make a a name for themselves and and profit from betting, horse racing in particular, is is that there, there is no one answer for all but that a highly intuitive individual will find that answer as long as he or she applies themselves to the discipline. And humans have got this tremendous ability to learn complex systems and to cut through those systems. And that 
placing yourself in front of the stimuli of horse racing. I have always said and always will say that the best way to become a good better is betting itself. In fact, I would go so far as to say that there is no other way. And again, it's an iterative process, like we know that so many processes in science are. You know, one tries an idea. Perhaps we could vacillate too much. Perhaps we could, or perhaps we could be swayed by short-term results, and perhaps we could forever bounce around in our thinking and never find a way of... But that type of person probably should look other than outside of, of, of betting for what they want to do with their, their life. But there are plenty of other people who will find that their ideas are very harmonic with making profit, that actually they aren't that swayed by short-term results. And in, in Bayesian language, they pl place a very strong prior over their intuitive sense of what wins horse races. And by doing that, they're not swayed by uh, new evidence. And in, the terms, in, in betting terms, that's usually the right approach to take. So there'll always be people who are very good at betting. And there'll always be people who want to be good at betting, but just can't get there. And for them, perhaps they should become uh, somebody who reads a lot of books and gets their fun out of the sport and drops the idea of trying to be a ruthless accumulator of funds. Or perhaps they should stop betting altogether. Who knows? But there will always be people who are massively successful at betting just because it suits them. And I think that if you start sensibly and if you apply yourself to betting, you will find out, might take a few years, but you'll find out whether it suits you. Because at the end of the day, it's got to make you happy. It's got to give you some payoff outside dollars and pounds. Otherwise, you won't think it's a worthy thing to do for the rest of your life. And for many people, it's the offshoots from betting that make it really interesting. The books that we've discussed, the ideas that we've thrown around. And for many people, being a sort of enthusiastic hobbyist tends to be the way that they get the best out of, the, of betting on sport and um, on horse racing. So you mentioned a bit before about sectional times and some of the challenges in that field. Is that one of the main, not necessarily emerging, but underutilized or undercovered areas in this space? Are there any others that come yeah. to mind that people are talking about a lot more, that people are focusing on a lot more in your world? Yeah, they are. That, that's, that's dead right. I mean, again, this is a topic that's a lot simpler than people think it is because it's lacked a proper treatment before. The original instigator, the, the people who wanted to instantiate sectional times to begin with, part of their motivation, I must admit, is to look clever or to talk about things that other people were not talking about. But practitioners of sectional times want to do the opposite. They want to generalize the ideas that sectionals can provide us with and induce people who are, who are qualitative, who have a qualitative approach to horse racing, to understand them and embrace them as well. And, and to be able to realize that you cannot tell the speed of a horse race by watching. You can tell the extremes. Of course you can. But it's profoundly different whether a horse is traveling at 38 miles an hour or 37 miles an hour. And if you want to practice standing by a major road and trying to estimate which is which, then good luck to you because you've got absolutely no chance. And so quantitative methods, as I said before, can fire the qualitative approach because they can, in, they can induce concepts, a conceptual understanding of something like the 
two turns of the Kentucky Derby that wasn't necessarily available just from visual methods. And in the case of sectionals, what's a really easy way to understand sectionals, which of course was pioneered first in Australia, no surprise there, um, and has spread to other disciplines. And in this country, one has got to give an awful lot of credit to Simon Rowlands, who writes a lot of good stuff about sectionals, is that if you very simply compare the speed of the race, which is speed is distance over time, so we can all do that computation, a mile, we've got the race time, we've got all the data we need to make to calculate the average speed of a race just with a pocket calculator. And then one is provided with the split time for the winning horse over the last two furlongs. Well, one can perform a, the, the same calculation there. It's, we know that the sectional distance is two furlongs. We know the sectional time. So we can calculate the sectional speed. And back to the fundamental law of pace, of racing that I mentioned earlier on, if those two speeds match up, assuming the track is, is flat, of course, but on a flat track, if those two speeds match up, we can make an inference from that very simple comparative data that the horse has run the rest of its race efficiently. And therefore, in those instances, when the split time of a race matches, the sectional speed of a race matches the average speed of the entire race, we can then make the very important inference that the final time of the race is close to the horse's optimal final time. So while it's widely understood that pace greatly affects the race times that horses run and the, the, the old chestnut about, what is it, um, uh, good horses, sorry, bad horses can't run good times, but good horses can run bad times. Well, the way to cut through that and to make that, in, to make that completely irrelevant is to understand that when you know the sectional time of a race, and specifically the finishing time, one can differentiate between races which haven't enabled horses to run their maximal time and those that have. And this can lead us then, this kind of Rosetta Stone idea of translating race times through some idea that enables us to really understand, how, to, to get a better model of the horse's actual ability, we can come across instances such as I've been very fortunate to do so when on television on a couple of occasions where a horse achieves a really good final time whilst departing sharply from even pace. And when that happens, well, Andy Byer would call that rarer than an ivory-billed woodpecker, but when that happens, one can infer that you've seen something very special. And I was at Newmarket one day when a horse called Kingman did that in a maiden race. And I went up to the horse's connections, uh, who were trainer John Gosden and representatives of Khalid Abdullah, and I said to them, your horse has just done something extremely spectacular there, and I explained to them as best I could why I felt that was the case, and said obviously there were five horses who I'd come across that had done that and had all ended up winning getting winning black type and three of them had been multiple group one winners and um the next thing i read was that people who with ideas about that horse were were attending the theater of the absurd it's a it's a phrase that many people over here will be familiar with and that one couldn't possibly make inferences like that just as an outsider without having observed the the horse's homework etc 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 
And it's that capacity which, to this day, fires racing fans and punters all around the world to believe in that the study of their own, the study of racing in their own way, that clicking their stopwatch and recording sectionals or, or using sort of third-generation ability is well worth that because when, when, when you can come across a horse like Kingman, well, in effect, you don't have to pay a penny, but you own that horse forever. And when Kingman came down the straight at Royal Ascot and won the St. James's Palace Stakes in a hand canter and ran some absurdly quick sectional for the last two furlongs, that was kind of verification for a lot of people of all the work that they put in and, and the belief that horse racing is this subject which is tractable to these advanced methods and that more than just whatever you win by betting the horse, there's some payoff for the human which runs a lot deeper than that because you've captured the chaos of a little corner of the universe. You've made it yours. You've, you've reduced its entropy, if you will. You've made it more something that you understood that other people couldn't understand it who hadn't gone to the same trouble as you. And in my case, I want to communicate that to others. I want to make them feel that magic is out there for those people who are just prepared to put in a little bit more effort and that it is, you don't have to be a college professor or you don't have to be a data monkey to get there, but you can just, as long as someone is able to teach you the basics of it, then you can do it for yourself. That's an amazing story. I thought you were going to say you were going to put an offer in for that horse and probably looking back might have been a good idea, but you're right. That's, that's, that's the power of, um, of this sport. And I think to, to go with that, you know, you, you have the same instance 10 times and you probably get knocked down six, seven, eight, nine times. And that isn't the horse that's going to be a multiple group one winner. But when, when you do find it and when you've followed it all the way along and you can capture that, it's, it's an irreplaceable feeling. It's absolutely spot on. Yeah. All, all models are wrong. Said the statistician George Box quite famously, and he was dead right, by which he meant that all models contain errors and that it doesn't mean that if you, if you systematically attempt to deduce something about a horse that it turns out to be wrong or it turns out not to be profitable or it turns out not to make you look smart, it doesn't mean that the idea is wrong. And you can understand that if you interrogate the idea itself from first principles. And fortunately for us in horse racing, Men like Isaac Newton have done that work in, in, in advance of horse racing ever being uh, conceived of. So um, we can rely on those ideas of classical mechanics and all sorts of other contributions that man has made to science to derive for ourselves a more advanced model of what wins a horse race than presently is the case for us. And we can get there with so little effort, so little extra effort if we're prepared to try and for me, that's why I say to people that in betting on horse racing, in analyzing horse racing, or in sport in general, we are playing the greatest game on earth. Absolutely, and I, it often comes up in many strange places when you can apply some horse racing things in different walks of life. I remember watching the Steve Prefontaine, I think it's a movie, not necessarily a documentary, but when he went to the Olympics and the, just the way the race was run at the Olympics, I think it might have been the 5K or whatever it was. Oh, yeah. He, he just couldn't possibly win. I think it was Bill Bowman was his coach who just said, look, the way that was run and the way your style of running is and the grit and determination you have in your running capability versus the other guy, I think is Eastern European guy who, who ended up yeah. winning, you just literally had zero chance of, of winning in that instance. And I think it's a 
it's a crossover to a different sport, but it, it does cross over into many different walks of life and some of the principles and, and strange concepts you see, whether it's, you know, you're sitting on the bus in Manhattan wondering why you're not moving and, and how some of it can overlap and, and relate to, to different things yeah. you're talking about. Well, I think that, that in this world, there are many things to worry about in our own lives and in the politics and in, in all sorts of domains that, that trouble us. And one of the great things about horse racing and sports betting is that it occupies our minds. It gives us something to focus on that isn't harmful and, however trivial, actually connects with other really important ideas about the world. And I think that as I've got older, I've appreciated that more and more and more because as life get, as you get older, life does become more difficult in the terms of you take on families and kids and mortgages and all those things. And it's nice to be able to walk your dog and puzzle over the running of some race several thousand miles away as I find myself doing often. And I, you know, I think that the love of the horse as a creature and all the other things that horse racing can offer are incredibly worthy. And I would never say that, that any, any person's level of interest in horse racing is not sophisticated enough or that they need to read more books or do more study. But for me, the joy of horse racing lies in those things themselves. It lies in learning more about the world around us and that horse racing is this kind of harmless way of modeling of uncertainty and a harmless way of sort of trying out new ideas in a predictive framework um, that actually are quite profound certainly and i one final question for you before i let you go we've talked a fair bit about you know the domain of horse racing and, and some of the betting related stuff Outside of that, have you got a final piece of wisdom for us or something that's helped you focus for this many years on, on these topics? And, and, you know, the listeners might be professional sports or horse racing betters or semi-professional or, as you aptly put it, they might be enthusiastic hobbyists. What's something yeah. you can share that, that's helped you or guided you through all these years? Well, I think there actually is a, a readily available answer to that, thankfully, because I was slightly worried halfway through the question as to what I would say. <laughs> but then I thought to myself, dig deep and what's the what's the what's the more instinct, most instinctive answer to that and really it's to listen to other people it's to open your mind to new ideas and in my case that's come from watching racing all around the world and confront the different ways that racing is discussed now that same thing applies to football but it's probably a bit more difficult because a lot of the best footballing countries aren't english speaking so you'd have to probably take on take on learning a different language in some cases. But in horse racing, we're, it's fortunate if you're an English speaker that many of the major um, nations are as well. And so you can switch on Australian racing and be confronted with some ideas that you'd never really thought about, not necessarily because Australian analysts are miles better than ours here, but just because they have a different slant. Australian racetracks and the way that races are run, for example, place different emphasis on the thoroughbred and so ground loss in Australia is much more important because horses accelerate into the turn. And to give my example of the Kentucky Derby, where the opposite is the case, the Kentucky Derby follows a fast, early, slow, late. Australian racers have this sort of curious, fast, slow, fast pattern to them in general. That's a grand generalization. Of course, they depart, many individual racers depart sharply from that particular model. But... That's, I think, or the way I would understand it, one of the ways, what, one of the reasons why ground loss has become such a, an on-vogue topic over the years in, 
in, in Australian racing. It's hard to win a race whilst accelerating sharply into the turn. Um, and so once you confront that as a new idea, you can bring that back into your own domain. Now, if you are a professional punter, something I've never done on a full-time basis, although I'm a very enthusiastic better, I've never become, never, never given myself entirely to better. You don't necessarily have the time to do that unless you enforce upon yourself an off-season. You've got to do things like trawling through odd sites and you've got to do all lots of other things, studying form or whatever it is that you're doing on modeling that, that take up vast amounts of time. And so, you know, you're in it less for fun than someone like me who, who gets their pleasure from understanding these ideas and passing them on to other people and discussing them. But I still think that having an open mind is not just really important in life, particularly nowadays, if you live in my part of the world, especially in the political arena. But having an open mind is really important, I think, to getting the best out of betting uh, on horse racing or, or other sports too. Certainly sage advice. James, thank you very much for coming on. It's been my pleasure to chat with you today. And as usual, or as expected, I have a dozen more questions, but we'll have to save those for, uh, for next time. Jake, thank you very much. And thanks for this really valuable resource. I've listened to virtually everyone but one, I think, actually. And I'll get around to, what, to listening to that this afternoon. And I think that listening to people talk about betting is something I'll never get tired of. And uh, I look forward to the, to the other capsules in this series. Very kind of you. Thanks again, James. You're welcome.